This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for subscribing. And if you're new, thank you for taking a listen to what I think is a one-of-a-kind program on the Internet and out there from an American Muslim, a conservative who not only believes in his country, in the Constitution, but believes that we have a Muslim problem that needs a Muslim solution. Week to week, I address with you the challenges of the day, those issues that few will address. And we take a deep dive into a few issues every week that you just won't get anywhere else. I try to bridge that chasm between the Islamist world and the West, the land of freedom and liberty. And with you, I think we're slowly making some progress, taking this journey, taking it across the airwaves, across the internet, and into wherever it may go, even into WikiLeaks. This week, I have to start by giving a shout-out and a just humbling congratulations to the Chicago Cubs. And this is coming from a guy who grew up in Wisconsin. And as you know, us uh, Wisconsinites um, are not only cheeseheads, but we have rivalries with Chicago. So yeah, I grew up a Brewers fan, and now... Living in Arizona for 20 years, I'm a uh, Diamondbacks fan. Uh, but you have to tip our hat, our collective hat, to the Chicago Cubs. Americans love an underdog. Americans love a story of redemption. We love the removal of that curse, a curse that has finally been removed from Chicago They can no longer say that they've been deprived for over a 100 years, last since 1908. And I'm sure there's a lot of sports enthusiasts, a lot of experts, former pro athletes that will do a lot better job than I in reviewing what this all means. But boy, that last game, that game seven was just phenomenal. Unbelievable. And with the rain delay, you couldn't help but make analogies to The elections we are about to undergo, will there be other powers that be that make these into a nail-biter? Certainly, either team winning this week would have had a blessed sanction of what their victory meant, while the elections, I think, are are quite different for us. But uh, the division, the energy, the stress is all there. And, you know, you look at the last time the Chicago Cubs were champions was in 1908. 1908. You know, since this is reform this, and we're talking about the Islamic world, 1908, just to put a sort of emphasis on what was happening in the world, there was a caliphate in 1908. The Ottoman Caliphate, the Ottoman Caliph, existed and was brought to an end as it became the sick man of Europe and then ultimately in 1924 made the 
caliph obsolete and ended the Ottoman rule, the Ottoman Empire, and put it into the dustbin of history. Clearly, ISIS is trying to bring back the caliphate, but it sort of puts it in perspective that there has not been a Chicago Cubs championship since there used to be a caliphate in the Muslim world. So, Mr. Erdogan, Mr. Fascist Islamist Erdogan, who seeks to bring back the Islamic rule, you were unable to bring back a caliphate before the Cubs won the World Series. (laughs) So that puts it in perspective about the time period that's passed. And since we're talking baseball, you know, I think we have, and I've had this, I've made this metaphor before, this discussion before, but it really is apropos this week as the country is focused on a World Series that we'll be telling our kids, our grandkids about, that we watched those pitches, those extra innings in which we thought the Indians were going to bring two championships to Cleveland, but ultimately the Cleveland Indians squandered a 3-1 series lead and lost to the story of destiny that the Chicago Cubs were going to win. And the question is, how many Muslim homes, how many Muslim households in America will be having that conversation? I think many. I think a lot of us are baseball fans, partake and believe in America's pastime. I know I played on a little softball extra intramural team or extracurricular team, but still, if you look into the ranks of baseball players, there are very few, if any, Muslim players in baseball teams, much fewer than you see in basketball, Olympic sports, as we discussed a few podcasts ago, and football, which has a number of Muslim players. Why is that? And, you know, we can make a lot of uh, discussions and uh, excuses, if you will. I don't think it has to do with diversity issues in baseball. Yes, pro sports has its challenges when it comes to diversity. And those challenges were addressed in the 2014 racial and gender report card. And actually, baseball scored an A grade in that report card, other than a C on women's issues. But... At the end of the day, there's very little evidence to show that there's a systematic prevention of Muslims from getting into baseball. And the problem is obviously the pipeline. Do Muslim families encourage their kids to play t-ball, to play baseball and softball in grade school and junior high and then into college? And, you know, I think the, the, I think the bottom line is a cultural one. America, the, you know, professional football obviously has its unique aspects and we're beginning to see games in London, but it's similar to rugby and there are other games that, that have its commonalities with professional football, though it does have its distinctly American rules and premises. But baseball is uniquely American. It is America's pastime. And I think that, call it assimilation, a term which I don't like very much because it implies some type of compromise or surrender of your original identity, which I don't think you have to do to fall in love and and be American first with our country. But I do think that there is a lot to learn about the fact that so many other cultures and faiths do take up baseball as a sport that they watch and they embrace through the 162-game season and throw the ball with their kids in the backyard, do pickup games, and make it part of the the culture of their own neighborhoods and their own persona as a family. And, And listen, my family escaped from Syria. And no, I did not grow up. Uh, I remember (laughs) trying to teach my parents baseball. And as much as they loved pro football and soccer and other games that had a more national face, trying to explain baseball to 
two actually very intelligent parents, a physician and a pharmacist with graduate degrees, was just a, a almost impossible adventure sometimes. And and I don't think it's because they, they couldn't have got it if they put their head to it, but it was just something that didn't interest them. So, you know, I think if you look at some of the some of the numbers, um, and and you know there was if you look through history, there's I believe identified as I as I did some research on this one Muslim baseball player, and that is Sam Khalifa. And Sam Khalifa actually is from the Tucson area here in Arizona, and um, he was the number seven overall pick in the 1982 Major League Baseball draft. He played shortstop and second base for the Pirates for a better part of three seasons in the 80s. Um, he's from Saguaro High School here in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, and I'm sorry, in Tucson. And what's fascinating is that uh, he is the son of Rashad Khalifa. And I don't want to get too deep into what Rashad did, but Rashad Khalifa was a very controversial figure who ran a reform movement out of Tucson called Submission.org. I think it still exists. Uh, he was assassinated, uh, and he was assassinated in, uh, I believe, in the in 1990 or 1991. But his son had been in baseball for three years, and then quit or retired after the assassination of his father. And what's amazing is that here's. Say what you want. There are many aspects to submission.org that I disagree with. They completely disavow the sayings of the Prophet, the Hadith, and other things. So it's it's quite um, beyond the reforms that I look at. But his assassination, his discourse and challenge and critique of authority in Islam, and to do so as a Muslim, because the ultimate definition of Islam is submission. So clearly, Rashad believed in submission. And we can get into what that movement actually did, but as you look at one of the core pastimes, his son embraced a distinctly American pastime and made it to the pros. And if you look in history, amazingly, the only Muslim to ever make it into the pro baseball field. Now, there are some managers that can be identified uh, that are Muslim, I believe uh, Farhan Zaidi is uh, was a general manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers. Uh, the Cubs assistant general manager at some point was Shiraz Rahman. Uh, so there are Muslims, obviously, in some of the leadership, but not on the field. And how many are in the stands? How many knew that the Cubs and the Indians this year were headed towards the World Series? And I think this is part of the American culture that we need to address as Muslims, not ideologically, but simply in our spirit, in our sense of belonging to the country we love. Love is, like in a marriage, an embrace of the passions that you may not bring into that marriage, but that your partner brings with them into your marriage. When you fall in love with your country, that love involves embracing passions that that country has that you may not have had coming to that country. And I think that's what's been missing in the message that we teach our children. Embracing the passions of the country that we live in and making them our own passions because they are distinctly American and it makes us love them because they are distinctly American. I've not seen that as much as I'd like to. This is Zudi Jasser and I'll be right back. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Reaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. 
Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Reaching the fault lines of today, this is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This and another segment this week on the Blaze Radio Network. And congratulations again to the Chicago Cubs for making history for reversing the curse. And as we speak of curses, I think that it's important to embrace what baseball, what America's pastime means to America and why it brings us together. On this program, I have criticized and condemned the actions of Colin Kaepernick, the second-string San Francisco quarterback that tried to exploit another professional sport in order to make some kind of statement and bring disunity to a game in which the national anthem is supposed to rise above it and bring unity, that we come together in sports to then have our teams develop rivalries on the field. And I think the Cubs epitomize that ability to year after year continue to try to seek excellence. And then 108 years plus later, after 1908, they've broken the curse. And what we learn is we come together to congratulate them and in America's pastime. We were talking last segment about why is American baseball not as common and as appreciated among Muslims? Now, that's my experience. I do think if you take a look, I'm not alone. That is what the research has shown. And again, you can find Muslims in many sports as professional athletes In baseball, you have a hard time other than Rashad Khalifa's son, Sam Khalifa, who was only in for a few years. And, you know, I think if you look at many different communities, be it the Jewish community, for example, which has a large minority population, They've had a number of players for over 150 years, from Sandy Koufax to to Hank Greenberg, and more recently Ryan Brown and Ian Kinsler, and so many others. And I think, again, the Jewish community has had reformation within their ideas, has not had the problem of theocratic mentality, domination and supremacism within their theology, They have a separation of religion and state and their mindset and have embraced liberal democracy. So as a result, I do believe it is not, and I think it's very fair to use the baseball analogy when talking about such philosophical issues because this pastime, when you love the country that you're in, you love their passions. And I think it is very, as we say in medicine, we use the term pathognomonic. Pathognomonic means a a sign of a disease that usually heralds that underlying disease. It may not be the primary disease symptom, but it heralds and is a signal of the underlying disease. I think the absence of American Muslims in baseball, in the stands, on the Nielsen ratings, and in the fields, and in the t-ball, and college, and junior high and younger sport ranges of baseball, I think, epitomizes the problem we have with embracing fully, not simply as visitors, embracing fully the American concept of home and passion. And I think so often, and, and I, in our Muslim Liberty Project, we teach our kids this all the time. We tell them, 
that we are Americans that happen to be Muslim, not Muslims who demand to be American. Unfortunately, many of the Islamist groups today are teaching and, and brainwashing our youth into believing that they are primarily Muslims and they should demand their American rights. Fine, you have rights. You should have them protected like every other American, equally, under the law, under God, and through the Constitution, and through your state and local governments and legal system. But that is a peripheral benefit to being American. So we are Americans that happen to be Muslim, that happen to have those rights guaranteed by our government, not Muslims first who then come here and demand to be American as if we need to to be given that, demanded that respect rather than earning it like every population, every group, every family, every individual that comes here. And I think that is not a nuance. And ultimately you see that borne out in identity movements like the Islamist movement. You see it borne out in the Islamist movements that hijack our communities as victims rather than as equal participants, equal humble participants. And finally, you see it borne out in the absence of especially participation in sports like baseball. And in this segment, I, I want to leave you with one sort of fatwa that explains it all. I would ask you, you know, what's a fatwa, first of all? Fatwa is a Islamic ruling from a jurist, from an Islamic judge or expert in Islamic law or sharia. And uh, there are fatwas for everything, from wearing nail polish for women to uh, the commission of acts of terror and violence and war, on and on. Every aspect of a Muslim's life can be navigated and directed by jurists who believe they can impose their interpretations of Islamic law upon individuals, and that's what theocracy is for the Islamist. So you just look up, Google for yourself, Islamic fatwa on baseball caps, and I think you'll get a good flavor as to where the cultural divide exists. So, you know, simply look it up. The first one that I see is from an Imam Khalid al-Musleh, Musleh, M-O-S-L-E-H, who has a fatwa. Uh, he's a Salafi. Salafism is as we've discussed on this podcast before, a form of fundamentalism, orthodoxy that believes you need to imitate the way the Prophet Muhammad did things in the 7th century and not deviate from that. Um, they are basically Islamists who are very literal in their interpretation of the faith's tradition. So in 2014, this is just a couple of years ago, this individual is asked by a Muslim that then gets spread around the internet, around the globe. And obviously this is also Salafism is now is seen throughout the, the Muslim world, but one of its strains is Wahhabism in Saudi Arabia. So you see most of the jurists in Saudi Arabia are some forms of Salafism. They're more militant, which is what Wahhabism is, is a militant form of Salafism. But bottom line is, is this is often in line. They use the same texts as the Saudis. He's asked the question, what is the ruling on wearing a hat, a baseball cap, not for imitating the disbelievers, but for fulfilling one's desire to wear it as an accessory? So this Musla responds and says to all the Muslims that may listen, if this hat, and he says in response to your question, we say, and with this Almighty lies the success. If this hat is only worn by disbelievers, then it is not permissible to wear it, because it would be a form of resembling them. This has been prohibited in the text of the Qur'an and the Sunnah, or the ways of the Prophet, and according to scholarly opinion, without disagreement. Look, he says, without disagreement. There is no difference in whether it is your intention to resemble them or not, because the resemblance that is prohibited is the uniformity in appearance, even if unintended. As for if the hat is worn by both Muslims and non-Muslims, then if it is from the apparel of the transgressors and foolish ones, then you shouldn't wear it either because a Muslim is prohibited from resembling anyone who is of a lowly stature, and also for the general statement of the Prophet as narrated by Bukhari and Muslim. 
It does not befit us to leave bad examples. And other texts that point to the prohibition of resembling those of a lowly stature and character. But if it was something that is worn in general by Muslims and not specifically by the transgressors and foolish ones, then in this case there is nothing wrong with wearing it. Oh my God. Do you need anything clearer that explains even wearing a baseball cap? As, as, as absurd as that opinion is, at the core of it, is a sense of deviation, is a sense of fear that these jurists have of ever embracing something that looks physically like something they believe is what Christians or non-Muslims would wear. So they are so afraid of losing their control that even the clothings of the Westerners, which is really based in freedom and liberty, is something they adhere and attach to Christianity which they consider also in a wacky fundamentalist interpretation to be infidels and non-believers when obviously to a Muslim who understands his faith, the Qur'an recognizes people of the book to be Jews, Christians, and those who believe in the God of Abraham. And yet these fatwas, these religious opinions and rulings reject all of that and, and forget the theological debates between faiths. They want to separate and segregate Muslims out from culture, from behavior, from society, so that they will not even wear that which resembles it, let alone play their sports, let alone adhere to the culture and embrace the culture of baseball, America's pastime, so that Muslims in America can feel it is their pastime, also, but not as a Muslim one, but as an American one. That's just one fatwa. There are millions and millions of fatwas out there. Go to the Assembly of Muslim Jurists of America and see the crazy, fundamentalist, medieval interpretations where they have fatwas of these Saudi jurists, thousands upon thousands, by the way, some of whom include many imams and mosques all over this country that give them fatwas religious rulings, not only on baseball caps, but on whether they should translate when working for the Department of Defense or the military or Homeland Security or the police, whether they should work on America's side versus Muslim side, the Islamic side of tyrannical regimes like Iran, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, which they view as Islamic and never view as tyrannical. And what they view as hateful is the West. Just today, a tweet from Ayatollah Khamenei again reminded the West that we are those for whom they seek death, and death to America, to them, is because of our lack of respect for human rights. Coming from the world's greatest offender of human rights. And that's what we got with $150 billion that Clinton fed, that the Clinton Kerry State Department and the Obama administration fed them. An Islamic world that tells us that we are the problem and doesn't ever want to do anything to imitate the West and enculturates and, and brainwashes our children into believing that Islam is not compatible with Western ideas. That's what we need to reform. When we come back, let's take a deeper dive even more into fetwas and what they mean. This is Zudi Jasron. Reform this. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars.
Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another segment of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. We were talking about fatwas, religious rulings or opinions by Muslim clerics or jurists who answer questions and then believe that their edicts can become interpretations of God's word, God's law, in which human beings must then follow their directions and make it into ongoing real-time interpretation. If they live in a Muslim-majority country that they control theocratically, then those become laws. If they're a minority, then they try to convince people that their opinions are the only legitimate ones and the other ones are not. Fetwas, religious rulings, are a treasure trove of understanding of the sickness of the pathology and and just backwardness of the thought process of the vast majority of Muslim theologians. This is where we have a problem. Now, I'm not saying that you don't need to have a degree in Sharia in order to make a real, robust ruling. But that ruling is simply an offerance of advice that we Muslims should be able to ask three or four imams get three or four opinions, and then make our own a fifth one. And that ultimately they are simply university academics, mosque sermonizers who may teach Islam, but should never rule and interfere between our personal decisions with God. And that Sharia in the end of the day, as our Muslim declaration of our declaration of our reform movement states, Sharia is man-made, not God-made. There are laws in the Qur'an that we believe that God does have many laws, but we interpret those on our own. And we believe that if Sharia was such an important part of the fabric of government, then that would have been outlined in the Qur'an, and it's not. The word Sharia itself is very hard to find in the Qur'an. Its root is there basically twice. And if so many words repeated over and over in the Qur'an... If Sharia was so important, it would have been repeated. Sharia basically means in Arabic, Islamic jurisprudence. It literally means the way to the watering hole, which is the path that the water takes and the least resistance as it flows downhill. And it's felt to be an analogy that applies to God's law, which is the right path of least resistance. So fatwas are sort of a academic, juristical, approach to making decisions. There's nothing, again, there's nothing more educational than looking at the bizarre approach that many of these learned I bite my tongue and say learned, but, you know, listen, we Muslims are in denial if we don't believe that these people making these bizarre opinions are not educated in Islam. They have degrees, multiple degrees from Al-Azhar University in Cairo, sort of considered the Vatican of Islam, We have of Sunni Islam. They have degrees often from Sharia, cauldrons and, and centers in Saudi Arabia with Wahhabi Salafi institutions there, or on the Shia side from Tehran or Baghdad and their Islamist institutions. So if you look just recently there was a renewal from Iran of the fatwa. The original fatwa when when and I don't say original original fatwa was the Prophet Muhammad's uh, revelation of what we believe to be the word of God through the Quran. And there were some fatwas there, obviously, as he interpreted some of that to the people that were following him at the time. But more recently, the West started to pay attention to fatwas after the Iranian Supreme Council, the fascist tyrannical theocracy, passed a fatwa, a death sentence against Salman Rushdie for his book, Satanic Verses. Salman Rushdie has since gone on to be quite a prolific writer, speaker, and has continued to live under the threat of death. And one would think that with the 
recent unclenching of the fist to Iran that that fatwa would have been removed. But the Iranian media outlets added another $600,000 to the bounty of Salman Rushdie's fatwa. And you may recall that in 1989, when he published his book, he was a British author, and that the Iranian revolution, the Ayatollah Khomeini, issued a fatwa that called on Muslims to kill him after the book was condemned as blasphemous and put him for years into hiding. They offered $2.7 million reward to anyone carrying that out, and in 2012 that was increased to $3.3 million. And it has continued. And this is not a joke. This poor man lives under threat of someone acting to carry that out. But that's when the West started to learn what a fatwa was. And there have been other fatwas. The Saudis, just a few months ago, released a fatwa about Pokemon Go. And they said, Pokemon Go, because of its methods of turning human beings into zombies, the Saudi Arabian cleric banned it, saying that it is against the religious principles, it is un-Islamic, and that this fatwa, by the way, the Saudis have a numbers to their fatwa, Fatwa number 21,758 is against Pokemon Go. Now, forget the fact that Al Jazeera is reporting that it's one of the quickly becoming one of the most, com- most common, if not number one, games across the Middle East. And it's not shocking that they would try to outlaw it because that game could influence free thought could influence control. Now, I can't believe I'm defending this game as a parent. I can tell you that Pokemon Go is the bane of my existence. I'm still proud to say that I've not participated in that game or enabled it on my phone. (laughs) But, you know, listen, anything that the Saudis hate from a legal perspective, from a personal practice perspective, often is a sign that maybe it's not all bad or can actually be good. And there have been previous fetwas against Pokemon. Back in 2001, they prohibited the Pokemon cards from mosques. And I can tell you that even here locally, I know mosques, uh, the um, mosque at ASU uh, would often, I know individuals that were called out because they had Pokemon cards. There was a sermon, I think around 2004, 2005, that many of the youth that we knew would tell us about the Imam speaking out about how evil the Pokemon cards were. And that it said, as the Saudi fetwa said back in 2001, the game is haram, which means that it's banned, it's evil, it's promoting Zionism, Freemasonry, and Christianity. And now the same verbiage is being brought back up about Pokemon Go. In a, in a report from the UK Telegraph, they said that it brings devious Masonic-like symbols and promotes forbidden images, according to the Saudi clerics. Triangular and star-shaped symbols are a particular concern to the Saudi clerics. It's also considered gambling, which is banned in Islam. And it's also considered problematic because it promotes evolution. It is a harmful mania, said a Egyptian religious lobby. Body, I'm sorry. And that the and that the characters evolve in the game, becoming bigger and stronger, and they prohibit evolution. So what they do is they strike fear into Muslims that would play these games. Many might avoid it, but I think many would engage it and live in feeling that their faith does not allow them to be comfortable, does not allow them to enjoy life, but rather is the suffocating, sterilized, inhuman ideology. Go to the Assembly of Muslim Jurists of North America and look at the names 
of the rulers on there that give fetwas and rulings and see what they say. See what they say about things that really matter. Misogyny, rulings about women's rights, female genital mutilation. Al-Qardawi, who Sheikh Al-Qardawi that I've talked to you about on this podcast before, talks about the ruling against FGM, female genital mutilation. He said he believes he's moderate because he calls for a nicking procedure rather than full mutilation of the clitoris. That is still immoderate and that is still draconian. And that is one of the fetwas that is considered popular and so-called moderate. And then we saw a moderate fetwa. What about, some people say, Zudi, well, why isn't there a fetwa against ISIS? Call them out. And sure enough, Canadian imams did that. When we come back, let's talk. Is a fetwa against ISIS a good idea? This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. We'll be right back. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. Coming up today on Pat and Stu. And this time, he's pissed off. Get some snacks. Why are you so mad this time? I'm not actually upset. You, you say not? that a lot. Every no. time you say we're back, you say this time we're pissed off. That's mm-hmm. not even the actual quote from the movie trailer. No, it's this time it's personal. Yeah. I don't know why it became pissed. For a shark, I, especially. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's personal. Pat and Stu. Weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Thank you for coming back to Reform This. This is Zudi Jasser. In our last segment, I want to continue the thought that we were talking about. Well, if fetos are all bad, maybe good fetos would be better. Fetwa being a religious ruling. And the classic one is that, well, where is the religious fetwa against ISIS? And listen, ISIS is as evil as it is because it follows the pattern, the belief that the ends justify the means. So it will do anything from beheadings to uh, barbaric militancy unseen before in humanity and They'll spread that on video because they believe anything possible to disrupt the world and put fear into people so that they can spread their evil and create their caliphate under the leadership of Sheikh Baghdadi. But the issue is that does then the means of calling for fatwas and rulings to become representative of the Muslim body, the ummah, then justify use of a fatwa in order to counter that. And I would tell you as a liberty-minded Muslim that that's not true. I think, sure, an imam can make a ruling and have a belief from a, a, a juristic standpoint, no different than the rabbis of the Beit Din courts or the canonic courts of Catholicism and the Christian community. So you can have jurists come up with faith-based rulings in the legal tradition and precedent of their their own scriptures and laws and legalisms. But a fatwa is a ruling that then carries with it the authority of the community. That is where I think we should draw the line. Yes, we should speak vociferously not only against against terrorism and violence, but against political Islam, the Islamic State and its identity, and our need to separate ourselves from any adherence to the Islamic State and loyalty. Yes, we need to make these movements, these ideas heard. But I think trying to call for fatwas, you know, the the Jordanian government 10 years ago had a, a coalition that brought together that created this this anti-Takfiri declaration, which they said, Takfir is prohibited in Islam. That's great. I think that's wonderful. And they signed it. Did it do anything? The Jordanian government still today, as we discussed, I think last week, has been putting people in prison for blasphemy and for for rulings that 
interpret the fact that the king of Jordan and his judges and his supreme court and court system have a right to determine what is and what is not appropriate speech in Islam, what is and what is not appropriate speech to criticize certain rulings of Islamic law. And yet they passed this anti-Takfiri declaration. And I think that's the only declaration, the only fatwa that really makes a difference. Yes, we should as Muslims say that. No one can ever say that another Muslim is not a Muslim, even the ones on death row, because God will hold them accountable. Yes, they should be punished for what they did on earth, but those are rules of mankind that we put against other men and women in order to prevent chaos. And we do that based on reason, not because it's God's law, but because we as men and women decide what laws our country should have. And then we punish people criminally and have criminal and civil courts to adjudicate those things. But the concept of fatwa, I believe, needs to be set aside, marginalized from the rulings of society, from the legal systems. And we need to base our legal system based on reason, and that's what we need to teach our youth. The Canadian imams did issue a fatwa against ISIS. They said they were from Vancouver, Montreal, Edmonton, and Toronto. They said it is significant for those individuals who understand the opinions of the scholars need to be followed. And because our fatwa is based on the teachings of the Quran and the Prophet, so Hardi said, with evidence of what kind of violations ISIS and ISIL have committed, that will put a lot of weight on people to be convinced that ISIL and ISIS is the wrong way to go. And they said they have been excommunicated from the Muslim community and those who will join them. They should be excommunicated from the Muslim community and cannot be considered Muslims at all. So they did take fear. They call them kafir, unbelievers. ISIS are evil. They are no longer considered Muslims. Are you kidding me? We have no clergy in Islam. Imams are simply teachers. Clerics simply pass their own opinions. This is a slippery slope that I would never say. I opened my book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, by saying that I wanted, after 9-11, to go and kill bin Laden and to sign back up in the military. But I knew he... But, like every American, I wanted to fight. But I also knew and admitted I could not change the fact that he was a Muslim. And he is a Muslim. So we have to deal with that fact. We can't be in denial. We can't sweep it under the rug. And these these fatwas need to be dealt with head on. Fatwas from Saudi Arabia that say you cannot build churches, you cannot bring in Bibles, you cannot bring in moderate interpreting type Qur'ans. These are the fatwas that we need every day to have on the news stories that show the chasms between the West and the East. It is not just about baseball. Caps. Yes. I think there's a lot to be learned by talking about that. But it's not just about those. It's deeper issues. But along with the crazy imams that tell Muslims that wearing baseball caps makes you look western and thus evil and kafir, come the fatwas that say women can't be cashiers in Saudi Arabia. Women can't drive. They can't work. They can't be anywhere near equal, let alone the fourth and fifth class levels that they have. People of other faith, Jews, Yazidis, Druze, and other faith communities are not given any rights in Muslim theocracy or, or Islamist states because of the adherence to the Islamist mindset. The idea that the ruling fatwas are the only way to rule and there is no government by reason but simply government by sharia. That is the problem in the organization of Islamic cooperation states. So now, please don't ask Muslims to pass fatwas. That's a slippery slope that will lead down things that are crazy. Ask them to fight against the Islamic state because once you defeat theocracy, all Islamic states then fatwas become irrelevant. They don't have impact. But the slippery slope 
from an Islamic State consciousness in Muslim-majority world, that consciousness that wants to bring back the caliphate, that consciousness that looks back, harkens back to the Ottoman Empire, the caliphate of the 7th and 8th century, long before that, after the Prophet Muhammad. The Turks who try to bring it back from the 20th century, the ISIS folks who want to have their own caliphate, this battle for resurgence, this revivalist battle back to the revivalism of Islamic empire and imperialism. That is the greatest threat today. And the way to fight that is on every front, from the intellectual ideological one to the core one in which you ask Muslims, why don't you like baseball? Come to a baseball game with me. Thank God. Thank God. The Cubs won. Broke their curse. And hopefully the other curse, the lack of a caliphate that the radicals try to say they can bring back will even go longer. It's been since 1924 that there's been no caliphate on this earth. ISIS doesn't count. It's been since 1908 that the Cubs didn't win the World Series, and they won this year. Thank God and congratulations. And this is coming from a guy from Wisconsin. And I hope it'll be another thousands and thousands of years, if not never, that we never see a caliphate, though. Because the resurgence of caliphism, this battle within Islam of revivalism versus reform is the key. The revivalists want to bring back things to the way they were at the time of the Prophet Muhammad and will fight on every front to do so. The revivalists want to revive theocracy and caliphism. The reformists want to do something new. They want to embrace America, Britain, Western nationalism and defeat revivalism and defeat Islamism in exchange for values that are moral, ethical, and adhere to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This is Zudi Jasser. Thank you again for joining me on Reform This. We'll see you next week. God bless. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.